Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Striving Toward Health Equity in Cardiovascular Disease, Patient-Centered Conversations to Address Social Determinants of Health in Nonvalvular Atrial Fibrillation. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. Supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance. Frank is a 63-year-old African-American patient who has recently been diagnosed with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. He's being seen today by a cardiologist for a discussion with regards to treatments to help him manage his condition. Good morning. I am Kamala Tamarisa, one of our cardiac electrophysiologists at Texas Cardiac Arrhythmia Institute in Dallas. Let's talk about the impact of social determinants of health on cardiovascular disease outcomes with a focus on non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Now, what are social determinants of health? The term is used often, and it is inclusive of the racial, ethnic aspects, social network aspects, and health illiteracy or literacy, and digital illiteracy or literacy, and financial constraints, and the zip codes of where people live. The prevalence of risk factors in the Black population and underrepresented racial ethnic groups is very high, including hypertension, obesity, and sleep apnea. And the complications are higher too. Stroke, myocardial infarction, and heart failure, and overall mortality tends to be higher in the subgroup. But access to care and ability to take medications is much lower. The Black population, as you can see, when compared to the white population, tend to have more symptoms. The palpitations are higher, and they tend to have more dyspnea and exertion and exercise intolerance and dizziness and fatigue. So obviously, there is disparity in presentation of the symptoms. They have symptoms at a higher rate. Insufficient housing is one of the main social determinant factors that are associated with increased 30-day readmission rates. So again, lack of access to basic needs, shelter, housing, healthy diet, these all play a key role in the management of AFib. When I see patients with non-valvular AFib, I do keep the social determinants of health in mind. And how do I do that? Basically, a few indirect questions and some direct questions. Household income. And what do they do for a living? What's their education level? How many people are in the family? Do they have some kind of transportation? And then insurance data is already there in the chart. So that's easy to see. And before the procedures, when we give the consent form, I ask them, are you able to read it? Do you understand? And the other components would be the language and the cultural issues or the barriers. For the Hispanic patients, I make sure to have a translator. And as far as the digital aspects, I ask the patients if they have smartphones, access to the digital platforms for us to deliver the telemedicine care. Next, we'll hear from a patient advocate about disparities that exist in the management of non-valvular AFib. I'm Melanie Truhills, an AFib patient and founder and CEO of StopAFib.org, an advocacy organization for those living with AFib. The social determinants of health can have a huge impact on patient outcomes for those living with atrial fibrillation. Common disparities or inequities among those with AFib include 
socioeconomic status that includes education and income and other factors, health literacy, race and ethnicity, sex and gender, and place and rurality. Those with less access to health care appear to take longer to be diagnosed with AFib, up to two to four years or more. This puts them at greater risk of strokes. This applies especially to those not typically considered to be at risk of AFib, such as those who are younger and females. Many people have multiple disadvantages, and these disadvantages can accumulate over a lifetime. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, stroke is a leading cause of death for Americans, but the risk of stroke varies with race and ethnicity. The risk for having a first stroke is nearly twice as high for blacks as for whites, and blacks have the highest death rate due to stroke. We're doing a health equity accelerator project in rural Texas because maps from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, show that stroke deaths in rural counties in Texas are disproportionately high for those 65 plus, including blacks, Hispanics, and women. Additionally, AFib hospitalizations by age, gender, and race, and AFib hospitalizations where the individual died before discharge, also show a dire situation, especially in rural Texas due to sparse healthcare facilities. This applies to other rural areas of the U.S. too. Due to their distance from healthcare facilities, many cannot make it to a healthcare facility in time. Research from Dr. Essien and others of a Medicare population found that those who are newly diagnosed with AFib are less likely to get oral anticoagulants if they are Black or female. Among those who receive oral anticoagulants, Blacks are less likely than whites to get DOACs. In the next session, let's review how healthcare practitioners can better support all of their patients. When clinicians are discussing patient values and preferences, it's appropriate to also discuss demographic and socioeconomic factors that could create barriers to getting appropriate care. For example, patient and family health literacy is one such barrier, as is the ability to readily access transportation and health care. Race and ethnicity, as well as language, may create barriers to receiving care. Here's some things to consider about all patients. Are they able to understand their condition, to participate in shared decision-making, and to carry out care recommendations? Can they understand and participate in discussions about medications such as anticoagulants or medications to manage AFib? Do they understand why each medication is important? Can they understand not to stop taking them even if they feel better or if the AFib continues? Are any additional resources or health coaching needed for them to understand why they need to take them, and just as importantly, how to take them properly? Are there tools they can use to help with adherence? Are there any food or medication contraindications they need to deal with? Are there any tests they need, and how can they access those tests on a timely and consistent basis? Can they understand the importance of consistent follow-up visits to monitor their progress? When having episodes of AFib, when should they seek out care and when should they just ride them out? Without specific guidance, they may not get care 
at appropriate times. There are lifestyle changes to be considered to help manage their AFib. Are they able to do so? Often, clinicians want to provide resources for their patients. There are great resources from the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Rhythm Society. Additionally, our organization, StopAFib.org, features a Get Started Learning About AFib guide, a library of video recordings from our annual patient conferences, as well as webinars, discussion forums, and blogs. Additionally, ours is available in more than 100 languages. Next, Dr. Tamarisa will talk about guideline-recommended anticoagulant use in atrial fibrillation and the impact of adverse social determinants of health on anticoagulant uptake. In this session, let's review the current guideline recommendations for anticoagulant use in AFib and how the SDOH factors may impact uh, their use. We know the oral anticoagulants are recommended for patients with chats to vascular score of two in men and three in women. And these anticoagulants are highly recommended based upon all the data. And warfarin is one choice. And as far as the direct oral anticoagulants, we have dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban. And a key point here is that DOACs are not approved for moderate to severe mitral valve stenosis or mechanical valve patients. This is not a head-to-head comparison, but a comparison looking at warfarin and the DOACs. Definitely, the stroke and the systemic embolism risk is lower with the DOAC use when compared to warfarin. And several trials are listed on this slide. How about the safety with regards to the bleeding risk? The bleeding risk tends to be better with the DOACs when compared to the warfarin in the same trials. And let's take a look at the SDOH on the anticoagulation prescriptions. When we prescribe anticoagulation, we do not assess for the factors we talked about. The access to care, insurance, what are they able to afford? Black or non-white patients and patients with cognitive disabilities are less likely to receive anticoagulation prescriptions. And this was a study done by Khatib and published in 2022, which makes it very important for us to screen and address and ask the key questions from the social aspect before we just write the prescription and call it a day. And what about anticoagulation initiation? Looking at race and ethnicity in patients, Black patients were less likely to be initiated on oral anticoagulants, and Black and Hispanic patients were less likely to be initiated on DOACs. So there is definitely a prescription gap, and whether the patient's compliance plays a role, that is a very difficult word because compliance might be tied again to inability to access, take the medications, financial constraints, or lack of knowledge. Sociodemographic determinants in oral anticoagulant prescription as per the Pinnacle Registry, and this was using the machine learning, basically showed that significant geographic variation exists between counties. Here, they found that the highest rates of prescription or usage of oral anticoagulants happens in patients who dwell in suburban settings in the Western United States. And household income clinic size were among the highest ranking features associated with the anticoagulant prescription. 
In the next session, let's take a look at the strategies to minimize these disparities that we talked about. Let's review some strategies to minimize the disparities observed in the non-valvular AFib management. Several strategies can be used as clinicians, as healthcare systems, and as patients to minimize these disparities. And from the clinician's angle, continuing to look at biases in the care and meeting the patient, educating them with regards to the risk factors and symptom recognition. And research is needed to diversify the clinical trials and allocating grants for race and ethnicity-specific studies, advocacy and leadership from the government and the healthcare industry with community initiatives and diversity, equity, inclusion task force initiatives. And healthcare systems and community interface is very important in overcoming the social and language and cultural barriers. Community-focused strategies were looked at. This was a study evaluating those patients who present to the emergency department with AFib. Using patient AF navigators is very useful because it reduces the wait time and it also helps with the continuity of care and it helps initiate the anticoagulation right then and there and with the continued follow-up. To overcome the disparities in non-valvular AFib management, I truly believe that a collaboration between clinicians, patient engagement, healthcare systems, and task forces and research data is key. And we will be able to get there, but it just needs inclusion with a purpose. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.